Father, I thank you this morning for our renewed opportunity to study about grace. Father, we don't take grace for granted. Certainly your word does not take it for granted. There is so much here for us. And so, Father, I thank you for the opportunity to see it anew again this morning, to understand it in a deeper way, to understand the role of the Holy Spirit in bringing us grace. And I thank you, Lord, that you have provided us this understanding. I pray as we open up the scriptures and as we look at it again this morning that you would speak to those hearts here who may be struggling with their own sin or with their own uh, concerns of condemnation or of inadequacy before you, Father. Certainly we are inadequate, Father. Certainly we do have sin, but your grace covers these things. And I pray, Father, that as we understand that again this morning, it would release us from that guilt, release us from that condemnation. And serve, allow us to serve you in a greater spirit of joy and in hope. I pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to finally finish Paul's 270-word sentence uh, that opens up our study of Ephesians. And as you know, we've been in this passage now from verse 3 through verse 14 for some time. In fact, as I was looking at my notes, I just glanced down and realized that I have titled my notes here Ephesians 1F. As you may know, I, I number each lesson according to the chapter that it's in, and then I sub-number that with a letter, so 1A, 1B, and so on. Well, today we are in lesson 1F, and as I think back, I don't know that I've ever gone to an F in the course of teaching a single chapter. So we're breaking new ground here, 1F. Next week we'll be still in chapter 1, so it'll be 1G. Thank goodness that I don't plan to spend more than 26 weeks in this chapter. Moving on, though, we look at uh, verses 3 through 14, Paul explaining the ways in which the believer is spiritually blessed as a result of God's grace. And though Paul really pours it on in this passage, he just moves from point to point, carried away as if by the enthusiasm or the excitement over what God has done in grace. Nevertheless, this section is just Paul's introduction to the topic of grace. We still have three more chapters in this book that are going to address grace in terms of doctrine, and then, of course, after that, we, we have other things waiting. And as we've studied through this passage, we've been following the outline that Paul provided. Paul gave us the outline of the Godhead. He said, the Father has provided us grace, and then he taught how the Son has provided us grace. And today, we're going to look at how the Holy Spirit is involved in God's delivery of grace to the believer. And in that study, we've discovered how the Father's role and the Son's role were distinct, each doing a different part of the process. And Similarly, today, we're going to understand that the Holy Spirit has a unique part in that process. So let's go back to the passage. We left off last week at around verse 13. We're going to pick up there again and finish this sentence that runs all the way to verse 14. So let's, let's take a look at Paul's explanation of the Spirit's work. Ephesians 1.13 In him you also, having listened to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Well, as I said last time, whenever you step into the middle of this long sentence in the Greek, you have to reset, you have to understand the context, and we'll need to do that here again this morning. And in verse 13, Paul describes a process of sorts. He is explaining how, by God's grace, you and I, believers, how we moved out of unbelief and into the family of God. 
And as I look at my English Bible, it appears as though there are three steps in this process, and they seem to proceed in a certain order. The final step in that process is that sealing of the Holy Spirit, Paul says. That's the main emphasis in this verse. But as you read through verse 13, and as you notice these steps, in your English translation of the original Greek, you may find that translation misrepresenting what Paul is saying or misleading you to a wrong conclusion. And I say that because the list of steps in verse 13 is not sequential, but rather Paul is describing something that happens simultaneously. That is, these steps do not happen once at a time. They all happen at exactly the same time. And I can show you that starting with the way the verse itself begins. Notice the verse opens with the phrase, in him. Now, remember, we've learned what this phrase means in an earlier week. We said the phrase in him means someone who is in Christ. Him refers to Christ. And therefore, we're saying this describes someone who is already saved, someone who is in Christ. So that would tell us that every step that follows that introductory phrase in verse 13 is referring to someone who is in Christ. It's describing the process by which that person became Christ's, but it's all prefaced on the idea that they are his. So keeping that in mind, we need to understand that these three steps in verse 13 are collectively speaking of one moment that happens virtually instantaneously. You simply can't separate them, spiritually speaking. We experience them in a linear fashion. We experience one thing, then another, because we live in time. We live bound by time. Things have to happen that way for us. There has to be passage of time. But Scripture is going to tell us, as we look at it this morning, that all three of these steps in verse 13 happen to us simultaneously from a spiritual source and all because we are in Christ. So I want to be clear as we open today that salvation in this passage, in this verse, is not three steps but one, happening all together. As we break them out, though, we will address them one at a time for the purpose of examining them. And the first step is, he says, having listened to the message of the truth. Or some of your Bibles may say, after listening to the message of the truth. But the word after doesn't actually appear in the original Greek text. And the Greek word for listen, akuo, it means to heed or to give attention to something. And then the word message is just the Greek word logos, and many of you know that that just is the word for word. Let's put all that together. The phrase might be better translated, not after listening to the message of the truth, but we could say instead, having heeded the word of truth. Having heeded the word of truth. And then notice Paul goes on to clarify what word he's talking about here. He says it's the word of truth, is the gospel of our salvation. So, Clearly, Paul's referring here to the testimony that Jesus is our Messiah, the gospel message. And if you wanted to capture that succinctly, it's really a two-part message. That is, first, that Jesus died on the cross as a payment for our sins to save us from God's wrath. And then, secondly, the message of the gospel says that Jesus rose from the dead and did so to prove that he was God and he had the power to grant us eternal life as well. That, in a nutshell, is the word of truth or the gospel of our salvation. So our transformation, Paul is saying, our transformation from death to life, from unsaved to saved, required first that we heed the gospel message which is found in the word of Christ. 
That gospel message commands all people to repent of their sin of unbelief and to turn to Christ in faith. And friends, many people hear this message. I mean, in the simple sense that they encounter it, the, the sound waves hit their eardrums or the, the words on a page of a, of a Bible track come into their eyeballs. They experience it in that sense, but obviously not all give their attention to it. How many times do you think you heard the gospel before you seriously gave any attention to it? Well, ironically, you probably have no idea how many times you heard it because you weren't paying attention. You weren't heeding it. So it came, you listened, someone exposed you to it, someone told you about it, maybe you heard it on TV or radio or something, maybe you read something at some point, maybe you even dared to open the Bible before you knew the Lord. But in all of those various moments, nothing about what you heard or saw made an impact on you. You weren't heeding it. You weren't interested in it. Speaking about myself, I can remember the first time I gave my attention to the gospel message. I remember sitting in a Bible teaching church. I was in my late 20s. And before that day, I had spent hundreds, if not thousands of hours in churches of one kind or another over my entire lifetime. My mom literally dragged me to church from my earliest days. And in all that time, even though I'm sure there were many occasions when I did not hear the gospel, I have to believe there were at least some times when the gospel was presented in the room. In fact, even in that Bible teaching church where I eventually came to know the Lord, I had been sitting there for months before I came to a moment of faith. So clearly I had been exposed to the gospel. But as I think back on all those years, I cannot remember ever hearing it. I don't ever remember it making an impression. I don't ever remember feeling the same feeling that I had on the day that I heard it surely and that I came to believe in it. So what does that say? Why wasn't I attentive to those words that eventually became words of life to me? And what about you? Have you ever been in a situation in which you as a Christian now are witnessing to an unbeliever, perhaps someone in your family, your workplace, or someone you encounter on the street even, and you may patiently explain the gospel, or, or perhaps you just make a mention of Christ, you're just hoping to see if there's some response. But as you speak to the person, it's as if they're dead. They're just, they're asleep. They're, they're suddenly made deaf. Their eyes are, are staring up at the ceiling or they're, they're looking around like they need to excuse themselves. They don't even have a potential to relate to what you're saying. I remember times when I have had an opportunity to explain the gospel to someone and it seems inevitably that something interrupts the moment. The person will get a phone call or... Another person joins the conversation, they change the topic, and, and whenever that happens, the person is failing to heed the message. It reminds me of Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 8, when he describes the parable of the sower and the seed. And in Luke chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus says, Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard it. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, so they will not believe and be saved. Jesus says that the enemy, Satan, or his demons, is working behind the scenes at all times to prevent the unbeliever from heeding the word. Now, I want you to notice Jesus said those who are beside the road are those who heard it. You notice that? He says they heard it, and I think he refers here just simply to the physical hearing. The words went into their, their eardrums, as I said, or in their eyeballs. Physically, the message was delivered, but spiritually, they did not heed it. It did not make an impact. And in short order, the enemy takes the moment away. And that's how I perceive those times when I'm speaking to someone and something interrupts it. it. It tells me that they weren't heeding it and the enemy swooped in and stole the moment away. 
But for the person who is in Christ, here again, the way verse 13 opens, for that person, the gospel message is heeded because the Lord's working there ahead of the moment in the person's heart to prepare them for what is coming. He removes those barriers that may have earlier prevented them from heeding the message. And I think back to those days I sat in church and the message came into the room and it went into my ears, but it didn't go into my heart. For the timing was not there yet. God had not prepared the moment for me to receive the gospel. For the person who is in Christ, though, the moment is all important. The conversation will not be interrupted. The phone will not ring. The heart will not be hard. The ears will hear. For that person, the Lord is already working to prepare eyes, ears, and hearts. And for that person, if they have been brought to the point of heeding the message as God permits, then the next step, Paul says in verse 13, is having also believed. Notice here again, the, the language here speaks of these things as happening simultaneously. Having heeded, having also believed, in short order, in other words, in a single moment. The word for believe in Greek can also be translated trusted. So Paul is saying we are heeding and then trusting in what we heeded. We, it's more than just hearing, remember? It's more than just the physical act of hearing. It's, it's something about the message makes an impact in our heart, and then that is followed immediately with a trusting instinct. If we read the first part of this verse together with the second part, it would sound like this. You, having heeded the word of truth and having also believed in that word. So once again, Paul's just not describing a, a series of successive steps here. He's describing a single moment for the one who is in Christ. The moment you truly heed or pay attention to the gospel is the same moment that you will trust in it. To help you understand what Paul is saying here, I'd like to propose a simple uh, story, uh, an analogy. I want you to imagine a five-year-old son. Uh, we'll just call him Tommy. And he's playing at the park playground this day. He's surrounded in this playground by a whole bunch of other children playing in the park with him. There are kids riding the carousels and swinging from the monkey bars and playing in the sand. And there's a lot of noise, a lot of commotion, a lot of joy in the park. And then, of course, around the edges of the playground, you have all the mothers and the fathers sitting in the park benches, diligently watching over their children. And then periodically, as Tommy is playing, one of the parents sitting on one of those park benches will yell out a child's name, gaining their attention or beckoning them home or correcting their behavior or whatever they need to do. And Tommy's ears hear those names being called out, of course, but the call of those names never registers in his mind. He never looks up. He never stops playing. He never heeds those calls. It's as if he didn't actually hear them, though, of course, his ears did hear the noise. This is a good example, I think, of how an unbeliever responds when the call of the gospel finds its ways to that unbeliever's ears, and yet God is not working in the heart to cause them to heed the message. Their ears hear in the simple sense of physical hearing, but they do not hear it spiritually. They do not heed it. And in that sense, it's as if they don't hear it at all. The voice speaking could even be very persuasive, very insistent, or very loud. But like Tommy, the voice is not familiar. And so it makes no impression. Now back to our story for a moment. What if suddenly Tommy's father were to call out his name? And his father's voice is, is no louder than any of the other parents. It, it, and he doesn't use special words. He just simply says, Tommy, let's go. But this time, when the sound of that man's voice, his father's voice, hits Tommy's ears, he heeds the voice. It, it makes an impression on him. It catches his attention. He looks up. 
He stops playing. He directs his attention to where the voice is coming from. And more than heeding it, he trusts in it. He puts his trust in it. He obeys it. It is compelling to him. Those two moments are inseparable for Tommy. How do you separate the two? How can you say that in the one moment that he heeded it, he was not also inclined to trust it? They are one moment for Tommy. And so it is also for those who are in Christ. When the gospel comes in the moment of God's choosing, the person will hear it, pay attention to it, and trust in it, all in the same moment. Even as in their own experience, their mind has to catch up to what's going on in their spirit. Nevertheless, the scriptures are telling us that from God's point of view, this is all happening in one moment. The Lord preparing the heart ahead of time so that as the word comes, it finds a receptive audience. As Jesus says in John's gospel, his sheep know his voice and they follow him. And then finally in verse 13, Paul moves to the third piece of this process. Paul says that one who is in Christ will be then sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And now we've come to the very first mention of the Holy Spirit in Paul's discourse on grace in this passage. And yet, in truth, friends, the Holy Spirit has been the one in view from the very beginning of verse 13. The Bible tells us that the Spirit is the one within the Godhead who brings the Word of God to the ears and to the hearts of those who are in Christ. And more than that, the Spirit is the one who gives us the ability to heed or to trust in what we hear. And furthermore, the Spirit is the one who brings to our hearts a desire to trust in what we've heard. He is, to use the Old Testament picture, He is a servant working in the world to find a bride for the Son by the Word of God. The Word is His sword. I want you to consider something Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians. He's speaking in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 concerning the power of the gospel message to bring men and women to faith. And he addresses at one point why it is that the message of the gospel is not compelling to everyone, but only to some. And his focus is on the Holy Spirit. I want you to look with me at 1 Corinthians 2, and I'll begin reading in verse 6. Paul says, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden mystery which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now jump to verse 12, Paul continues. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, if you want a fuller explanation of what Paul is addressing here in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, I'd invite you to go online and listen to that study online. But for now, there's only a couple of things we need to attend to. First, Paul explains that the gospel that Paul was sharing was a mystery that the world did not embrace in its natural state. And when Paul uses the word natural, or as a natural man, he's referring to the unbeliever. So that begs the question, why doesn't the whole world just embrace a message of grace and salvation? Who would not want that message? 
And by the same token, why did we not embrace the message the very first time we heard it? Perhaps some of us did, but in many cases, I'm sure we didn't. I know I didn't. Well, what explains that? The message was simple enough. It didn't change. Why did we find it compelling in one moment, but earlier we didn't? If I was to explain to a child that 2 plus 2 is 4, and the child simply rejected it and could not accept it, and I kept explaining the same thing over and over, and then several years later that same child said, oh, 2 plus 2, yes, that equals 4, no problem. Wouldn't you just think the child was crazy? Well, why did he accept it in the later moment when he didn't accept it in the earlier moment if it's the same message? Well, Paul goes on to explain why that's true when it comes to the gospel. He says, the message is a spiritual mystery which has been prepared by God for the glory of his chosen children. We were predestined to receive it, he says, which is why we were given the Spirit of God so that we might understand the message as it came to us. I want you to see that. Paul says, the Spirit alone understands the thoughts of God. So Paul says, We received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that we could understand the gospel message when it came to us. The Spirit was acting like a a supernatural translator. He was revealing the truth of the gospel. He was making it compelling to us. He was leading us to heed it so that we would receive it. That's, again, why we say these three steps in verse 13 are all happening together. For it's impossible for them to happen independently of one another. You simply cannot receive the word of truth from God, anything spiritual from God, if you do not have the capacity to receive it. And the capacity comes by means of the Spirit. In light of the recent victory of the Cubs in the World Series, that seminal moment that, uh, that, that has no precedent as far as anyone living on earth can remember, I want to use baseball then as a simple analogy here. Uh, imagine that the Holy Spirit is the pitcher and the ball is the gospel message and the ball is going to be thrown down toward home plate and then as the Holy Spirit releases the ball from the pitcher's mound, he runs faster than the ball does all the way to the home plate and he stands behind home plate and he catches his own pitch. Spiritually speaking, that's what Paul is explaining. Paul is saying that the gospel message was designed by the Father to be a mystery that could not be received by anyone except the one who authored it, that is, the Spirit of God. And that's why he puts the Spirit in us, so that we will find the message of the gospel familiar and compelling. And that's why without the Holy Spirit, Paul says, that no one can understand the things of God. He says that the things of God are foolishness to those who do not have the Spirit. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, that he says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, Beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. You notice Paul says that it is by God's choosing that we would have this opportunity and that he then accomplished that salvation through the sanctifying work of the Spirit with faith in the truth. So the Spirit is the one who delivers the word of salvation to our ears and gives our hearts the ability to heed it. Paul says it very simply in Romans 10:17. He says, faith comes from hearing, and hearing, notice that, hearing by the word of Christ. That is, your ability to heed the word is given to you itself by Christ. And then next, the Spirit leads us to confess a belief in what we have heard. Paul says in Galatians 4, 6, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Here again, notice the order. Because you are sons, or as Paul says in Ephesians 
1.13. In Christ, because you are sons or because you are in Christ, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. So which came first? Did you receive the Spirit so that you could become a son or daughter of God? Or, as Paul says, were you not a son or daughter of God already in God's perspective? And that's why He sent the Spirit into your heart. And as a result then, Paul says in Galatians 4.6, because the Spirit entered your heart, then, he says, you cried out, Abba, Father. Your cry for God, your confession of Christ, is the result of the Spirit working in your heart to lead you into that moment of trust. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12.3, he says, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So, the Spirit's role in the grace of God is not insignificant. When you think of God's grace toward us, you, you normally think of the Son, certainly, and His work on the cross. Perhaps you think of the Father as well in some sense. But I find that the Spirit's role is often overlooked. And yet Paul says, it is the Spirit who brings these saving truths to our hearts. We could use another analogy. You could compare the Father in His role of bringing grace. You could compare Him to a factory of sorts. He's the factory that makes the grace available to us. And if the Father is making the grace for us, then that would say the Son is like our credit card. The Son is the one purchasing that grace for us. And then finally, that would mean that the Spirit is like your UPS man who delivers that grace to your heart, to your front door. I'm I'm sure you'll never look at your UPS man the same way again. What's more, Paul says, we were sealed by the Spirit of promise. The term sealed refers to the way legal contracts or, or legal agreements were secured shut by wax seals. They would take the documents, roll them up like a scroll, and they would seal the edge of them with a stamp of wax. And that would seal the document from alteration, preventing it from being changed or altered in any way. But it also signified that this document would be enforced by a legal authority, by a magistrate. And so now we ask them, what is it that the Holy Spirit of promise has sealed to us? What promise has God sealed by His Holy Spirit? What is the agreement we have with Him? What is our promise in Christ? Well, friends, it is the promise of what the gospel itself explains, that as Christ died but lived again, so will we one day live again. That death is not the end of us. That we too will be raised one day into a new body, an eternal body that we can have forever. We will live in it forever. And how can you be so sure that this will happen? How do you know that God will keep His promise? Well, the Word says that He has put His Spirit in you, Paul says, as a guarantee, as a means of promising that He will keep His Word, that He has sealed the document, it cannot be altered, it cannot be changed, and it will be enforced by someone who has the power. It will be enforced by God's power. We, we could say simply that the Spirit has sealed the deal for our salvation. And more importantly, this assurance comes from God. He is the authority who will keep this promise. He never changes his mind, the scripture says, and he cannot lie. Friends, that is the surest promise anyone could ever offer you. That a God who never goes back on his word and is true to everything he says has promised you by his own spirit that he will do exactly what he has said he will do. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless... He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In other words, it does not matter what you and I do. It does not matter what we say or what we think. 
From the moment of our salvation, we are sealed for that destiny, and there is nothing that can change it, for God will not change, and no one is more powerful than God. He cannot deny himself, Paul says, in the sense that he put his own spirit in us, and that would mean he cannot turn his back on himself. President John Kennedy once told a story about an Irishman who was on a journey through the countryside, and as he was walking, he came upon a high wall that was blocking his way, a high stone wall. And that wall seemed just impossibly high, too high to climb, and so the man gave a moment's thought to just turning back and ending his journey. But instead, the man took off his cap and threw the cap, tossed the cap over the wall to the other side. And he thought to himself, well, now that my cap is on the other side of this wall, I have no choice but to find a way to follow it. And in a sense, that's how I like to think of what the Bible is saying when it tells us that the Spirit is a pledge from the Lord, a promise for what he has given us. In a sense, you could say the Lord has thrown his own cap over the wall, so to speak. He has committed his own spirit to going the distance with us. He has thrown his lot in with us by virtue of giving us his spirit. And that means then that we can have a bad day. We can have a day that calls us into questioning whether even the Lord could love us anymore or even whether we still love him. Those things can happen, but there is no turning back for the Lord is determined to come over the wall following his spirit, so to speak, because he can't leave it there. He can't turn his back on himself. And if that weren't enough, Paul goes on now in verse 14 to explain how the grace of God given to us by the Holy Spirit goes even further. Paul says in verse 14 that the Spirit is a pledge toward our inheritance, he says. Now, we've already looked at our inheritance in an earlier lesson in this study. We learned then that that our inheritance in the kingdom will be a portion of Christ's own inheritance, which he won at the cross. So as he died on the cross, his death produced an inheritance, but then as he rose again, he received back his own inheritance, but since the Bible says we are fellow heirs and children of God, then we will share in that inheritance. And our inheritance is a glorious thing. We learned about this, as you know, in the past weeks. It is a glorious thing, and it awaits each of us simply because we are heirs. And the Spirit living in us, Paul says, is God's pledge to us toward that future inheritance. The word pledge in Greek could be translated payment, as in down payment. That is to say, the Lord wants us to look forward to that future inheritance with such anticipation that we won't be distracted, we won't be tempted by the things we see in this world, the things that perish. We'll have only our attention on that future inheritance. And in order to encourage us to have that perspective, the Bible says that God gives us the Spirit of God in us as a pledge or a down payment on the good things that He has planned for us in the kingdom. And so the Spirit of God doesn't just come to us to give us life, to to bring us the gospel through faith, but He then remains with us after that as a guarantee of what we have waiting for us in the kingdom. Now, I think some of you, perhaps, as you contemplate the value of God's down payment in the form of the Spirit, you might be tempted to say to yourself something like, well, yes, see, that's nice, but I don't really find a lot of value in it. Now, I'm sure you wouldn't say that out loud because we all want to look very pious. We all want to appear to be very mature. But maybe deep down somewhere in your heart, you know, the idea of God giving you a down payment in the form of the Spirit, it just doesn't excite you very much. And speaking like some guys, we would think, well, if you can't drive it, eat it, shoot it, or date it, what good is it? But if that's how you see the gift of the Holy Spirit in your life, well then, friends, you haven't scratched the surface of what God has already given you. 
And may I suggest that perhaps that's why you're not very excited about what God has in store for you in the coming kingdom? I mean, if you can't get excited and find joy in the presence of the Holy Spirit in you, well, then when you contemplate the fullness of what God has waiting for you in the kingdom, it it wouldn't surprise me if that seems hollow as well. But friends, in truth, the gift of the Spirit working in you is nothing short of miraculous. He causes us to think and to act and to live in completely new and better ways. And He equips us with powers and abilities to serve others in strength and with insight that goes beyond anything we could ever do on our own. He gives you power to pray with another in the body of Christ and have the opportunity to see God respond through that prayer. And He may give you words of wisdom that you can share with someone who is hurting in the body and you can see them healed through just your words. And you can speak the truth of the gospel to someone who has never heard it before and you can watch a new life enter into eternal life in the promises of that gospel. Friends, if none of those things have happened to you, then may I suggest that you are not taking advantage of the gift that God has given you. You haven't experienced the life He has made available to you. And yes, these things require some degree of maturity. They're like a muscle. You have to work it to strengthen it. But Paul says that these little miracles that the Spirit is able to do through and in us from day to day, they are just merely the down payment of what God has in store for us in the kingdom. If God's own Spirit living in us is just the beginning of what good things we will know in the kingdom, can you imagine what more is coming? Well, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.9, the answer to that is no, you can't. You can't imagine it. In verse 9, as he speaks about looking forward to the things of God coming for us in a day to come, he says, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Paul is saying that there are things coming that no one's even thought about. The life He has planned for you and I in the kingdom is is so far beyond our experience here that we literally cannot imagine it. So even the marvels that are done by the Spirit can't fully prepare us for the marvels that await us in the kingdom. But that's just a sign of God's goodness, of God's grace. That even with His own Spirit living in us, it only touches the surface, just scratches the surface of what He has prepared for us. Friends, that is grace. That is God's unmerited, undeserved blessing and favor to us. That He created us in the first place is grace. And that He put Adam and woman in a perfect garden was grace. But then Adam repudiated the Lord's good work and he refused to trust in God's word. And as a result, he plunged God's perfect creation into ruin. But God didn't leave us there. You know, you know He could have left us there. He could have left all humanity in its sins and then justly judged all of us for that sin. But he didn't do that. John says in his gospel that he so loved the world, putting his own son on the cross to die to make possible our reconciliation with him. A son who came to this earth and lived sinlessly and therefore deserved nothing that he received, but yet willingly took the penalty for our sin on the cross. And if he had stopped right there, friends, we would have no complaint. The grace of God would be manifest and we could give Him praise and glory into eternity for that alone. But His grace just keeps on going. As we've learned in this passage, Paul says, He then reconciles all things through His Son, giving us a a new body to go with our new spirit and a new creation to go with our new body and a new world one day in which all things are set straight. 
And then in the meantime, we've learned that He gives us His Word so that we would have His counsel, so that we could know Him and follow Him as we await these wonderful things to come. And by His grace, He has pledged that He will give us a great inheritance of riches in this kingdom so that we can enjoy it even more. And all of these things He has delivered to us by His Spirit, who then stays with each of us until all of these things have been completed to assure us that what God has begun in us, He will bring to completion. So friends, when you hear of God's grace, when you hear that word, when you sing it in the song, I hope you will think back to Ephesians 1 and to this passage, verses 3 through 14, and I hope that you will remember all the ways, the many ways, that the Lord has blessed us by His grace. Let's go to prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise You for Your amazing grace. We thank You for Your blessings the many we know and the so many we have yet to see. We thank you, Father, for the immeasurable, amazing grace that you have poured out on us. Father, never let us look past it. Never let us succumb to the deception of the enemy who would tell us that we stand condemned and that we are unlovable. Or who tells us that we were once good, but now, Father, we have lost what we had. These lies, Father, cause us to, to diminish your grace, and we don't want that. We want to... We want to rest in it. We want the fullness of it. We ask, Lord, that you will keep us always mindful of your grace. Thank you for your word that reminds us of this this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.